Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. So uh, if you're a fan of the podcast and you listen regularly, then I'm sure you're familiar with the Top 10 series that we did last year, commemorating 10 years of the Recording Lounge Podcast. Yes, that's correct. 10 years of having this podcast. Now, what you maybe didn't know is that I actually had a couple more episodes planned. Um, In fact, the next three I'm going to do, uh, but the end of the year got away from me, got really busy with projects, then the holidays, you know how it goes. So uh, I decided, you know, even though technically this is the 11th year of the Recording Lounge podcast, I'm going to still finish the top 10 lists that I had made. So this uh, series that I'm doing now is uh, about sort of frequently asked questions. Now, this was inspired by a podcast listener who sent me an email who said, um, you know, hey, if I've got a couple questions, uh, you know, can you help? I said, sure, I'll try. And he asked me like three or four really random, like a mix question, a room acoustics question, a producing question, you know. And uh, he was like, maybe you should consider doing like uh, like random question podcast. And I thought, okay, well, I do get a lot of random questions, but, you know, it's hard to just put all those into one show. Um, but I started looking back through some of the emails I've gotten over the last six months, eight months, and uh, I, I do get a lot of frequently asked questions that I answer very often. And there are a lot of things that people will ask me in person or they'll ask me on YouTube comments or just that you'll see articles about. So what I decided to do is assemble uh, sort of semi-random questions, but they're organized by topics. So I'm going to have top 10 mix questions that are, you know, frequently asked questions, uh, top 10 frequently asked recording questions, and top 10 frequently asked studio slash career questions. So in today's episode, we're talking about the top 10 most frequently asked questions about recording and or producing. Number one. When recording bands, do you prefer to track live or individually? Is one way better or worse? What are the pros and cons? Okay, so this is a great question because me personally, I like to track things mostly individually. Now, there's a few reasons for that. Number one, I think that it's way harder to track live than most bands realize and Bands that I've worked with that have the ability to track live are kind of a, a step above. You know, they're they're really talented players. The problem is you have a lot of players who are told or grow up with this idea that like real bands, you know, the classic records were all done live. Therefore, that's why they sound the way they do. Uh, when in reality, the the biggest reason why those records sound the way they do, in my opinion, is because of the players and the songs. Amazing players and amazing songs. It's not just because they recorded at the same time. I mean, there are records from the last 30 years where stuff has been overdubbed. I mean, Beatles records and Queen records and stuff were and, and where stuff had been tracked and retracked and and sound on sound and wall of sound and all this and they're still amazing records, but they're not amazing because of how they were recorded. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that tracking live is inferior or tracking individually is superior. What I'm saying is that most bands are not skilled enough to pull off live tracking. And that's it, the brutal truth. If a band is paying you and they say, we want to track it live, then 
Well, that's the job. You're going to track them live. If they're paying you to produce and they say, uh, you know, we want your opinion. And if you really don't think they're good enough to pull it off live, then you should tell them. Now, I have no problem whatsoever in most situations tracking certain pieces together. For example, drums and bass together or even drums, bass, rhythm, guitar or drums, bass and keys. I can isolate things really well. Usually bassists and drummers play a little bit better together, but not always. It's kind of ironic because when you're using headphones, you're actually hearing the sound more immediately than if you were sitting in the control room playing bass, for example, listening over my speakers. Because the sound is coming zero latency electrically to the mic preamp, back through the headphone mix in zero latency back to you. Very, very small loss there. I mean, if any. But if you're sitting in a control room 10 feet away from the speakers, that's very easily like a 10 millisecond delay, which is actually closer to the delay that you would feel if you were playing in front of a drummer, which could cause the bass player to play behind the beat. I'm ranting a little bit now, but what I'm getting at is I, people, I think, overstate what live tracking can do. Now, I will say this, for certain things like vocals or lead parts or improv parts or any sort of like jam sections, that's almost, I mean, that's really hard to get those sort of special moments when tracking individually. Meaning when you're tracking individually uh, you know, solos, it's a little harder for a guitar player or a saxophone player to, like, get into it like they would live. So that's definitely a con. Um, one of the ways that I try to combat that awkwardness or fear is I try to get the mix and everything uh, sounding as good as possible, as quick as possible, so that by the time we're tracking lead elements or, you know, lead vocals, it sounds inspiring to record to. And I make sure that their headphone mix sounds great, and I try to make sure that they're comfortable in the room, and I try to make sure that, you know, their mic sounds great in their headphones. And it's not like, you know what I mean? Like, I try to make the experience as enjoyable for them to where they feel like a total rock star and are are feeling like, man, I'm going to nail this. That's the type of energy you need. That all being said, you know, realistically speaking, how many of us have a large enough live room to track five pieces and then an ISO booth with a window where a singer can be, you know, tracking live but not with the band uh, and then, you know, separate isolation booths for the amps? Like, we're talking about major facilities here that can do this pretty easily, but most of us can't do that. So one more thing to consider about tracking live versus individually, in theory, tracking live could be quicker because, you know, in theory, the song is only four minutes long. Uh, you set up the mics, you hit record, you do the perfect take and you're done, right? Well, <laughs> you know, in real life, it doesn't work like that. I'm sure many of you might know the story about Tom Petty you know, uh, in the Heartbreakers recording, you know, I forget, I think it was Refugee. They recorded that song like, I don't know, 70 times or something. It's just something crazy because if one person messes up, then it's kind of all messed up unless everything's isolated and then you could go and punch in and, you know, it, it kind of depends on how it's exactly set up and what things are isolated and how much bleed there is and all this. But it does have its own set of catches. And sometimes you miss things because you're not really dialed in in hearing individual sounds, you miss 
noise or you miss playing mistakes or you miss timing problems or and again sometimes those idiosyncrasies can be super charming but sometimes they're not at all and they just sound like a mediocre band who can't play to a click this also kind of goes into the question of do you always record with a click well not always but a solid 80 percent of the time 90 percent of the time it just depends what the band wants i don't have a problem not recording to a click uh it is in my opinion, a really nice thing to have. But, you know, I, I don't really have any hard and fast, like, no, this is the this is the correct way to do it. This is how real records are made. I think anybody that has that sort of outlook is is sort of, you know, they're out of touch. Records are made in every possible way imaginable these days. And I think all of those ways are valid. I also, like I said, I don't believe that recording live is the only way to do this. And that's how, you know, they used to do it, therefore, it's better, you know. Just a few little more things to consider, um, you know, when you're tracking together, one big benefit is that you hear context, like, immediately. You know, you're hearing the keys, the drums, the bass. So, tonally, it's a little easier to uh, make sure that your sources are sounding right. You know, you could say, oh, you know, the guitar's a little bit dull, and you can know that because you're hearing the drums, uh, or you can say the bass is a little bit, you know, stepping over the kick drum because you're hearing them together. Whereas if you're recording individually, you kind of have to base everything on the drums and hope that you get the drums right. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're, you're stacking one thing on top of the other. However, um, one way that you can kind of combat this if you have the budget and time and availability is to make a really fleshed out demo of the song and then render stems of each part. So when the drummer is recording... You have guitars, keys, vocals, backing vocals, percussion, whatever, and then you can mute when the drummer is done. You can put in the real drums, and then you can mute the fake bass and then record real bass and then slowly just sort of cross things off the list. But at least in that situation, you're hearing context rather than like a scratch guitar and a click track. You know what I mean? That can be really, really helpful. So, you know, there are lots of pros and cons. Me personally, I think logistically, it makes the most sense to do individually or mostly individually and just realize that it isn't perfect and that there are some, you know, maybe a little bit of loss of uh, of interaction and you you just have to think about creative ways to help players get the most out of their performance in that situation. So hopefully that answers the question. Number two, you seem to use a lot of multiple microphone setups on things. Do you always do that? Why or why not? Uh, so this is a question I've gotten on YouTube. I've gotten through email. You know, uh, people will comment on some of my videos where I'm using, you know, 16 microphones on drums and, uh, you know, I use generally two or three microphones on guitar cabinets. I'll use two or three microphones on acoustic guitar. So that's a great question. No, I don't always use multiple microphones. There are many, many situations where I use a single microphone on an acoustic guitar or, you know, I, I almost, I don't, can't even think of the last time I did two mics on a vocal. You know, I use one mic on a vocal. If I'm doing bass cabinet, I do one microphone on it. Very many, many times I use I use a single mic on guitar amp. It just depends on the sound I'm going for. Now, one of the main reasons that I use so many microphones on drums is because of 
partly the answer I gave to number one is that you don't always know contextually what you're in for. Um, maybe when you get all the guitars in the mix, you realize, man, these drums really need to be a little bit more roomy. I wish I had a second set of room mics that I could distort. Or these drum mics are, you know, I really wish these drum mics were a lot tighter. We decided to go with a Rhodes instead of a piano and one guitar instead of two. So now the drums need to sound a little bit tighter. I wish I had more close mics. You know what I mean? Like, and I do that not not necessarily as a safety so much as I want the flexibility. And I want, when a client says, hey, can you turn up the hi-hat? I want to be able to do that. Or if they say, like, can you, you know, make it more roomy? I can do that in an organic way rather than, like, adding a reverb. I can just turn up room mics. Or if they say, can you give me more click on the kick drum? I don't have to turn up an EQ. I can turn up the inside kick drum mic. You know what I mean? If I need more low end on the kick, I can turn up the outside mic. So it's not so much as a safety. I mean, that is a part of it, but it's more for the flexibility because yes, even though I do like to kind of get the drum sound early and kind of base the rest of the production around it, I also think it's really important to remain flexible and to let the session develop and evolve because things happen in the studio when when everyone's vibing together and you're working on guitar sounds it, it often happens during like guitars or keys or you know percussion or even backing vocals where like certain ideas will will show up and everyone's like oh wow that like changes the song um maybe that's the hook and then you know you're you're just letting the creative juices flow and when you do something like that maybe it's like man, maybe we should just go to like a kick only intro. And if you did this like cool minimalist mic setup and you're like, oh, well, I don't have like a kick inside mic or something or, you know what I mean? You might not have that option. So to me, it's less of a, you know, safety and more of a flexibility thing. I want to be able to have that flexibility for myself and for my clients. I want to be able to give that to them. Uh, another thing is that a lot of clients these days, especially, you know, younger musicians that are growing up with logic and growing up with plugins and all this, they're used to having to do demos and stuff with drum machines. And quite frankly, they're spoiled by the fact that you can turn up and down every single mic. And so in a mix, they kind of expect you to be able to do it. Not not always, you know, experienced artists, generally, they're more willing to commit to things. But I'm not trying to generalize. I'm just saying it's true. Uh, <laughs> I, I get, you know, clients that are like, hey, I, you know, turn up the snare mic or turn up the... Um, whereas, like, the more experienced clients wouldn't say turn up this mic. They would say bring out the snare drum and they'll leave it to me as to how I want to do that. You know, I hope that makes sense. Anyway, on acoustic guitar, I love mono setups, but I also love mid-side, which is kind of like fake stereo like halfway in between mono and stereo i also love stereo setups it depends how much space i am trying to take up with the acoustic if i'm filling up a whole stereo spectrum and i'm doing like a solo acoustic guitar record you can easily get away with stereo but if you're trying to put acoustic guitar in a full band track i can almost guarantee that a big wide stereo mic setup is going to take up too much room. It's going to make it sound like bigger and larger than your drums. You know, it just kind of, it, it just will dwarf a drum kit. It's crazy how it will do it. And it, and it, but it will. 
Um, you know, microphones are not like our ears. They're not like our eyes. They don't work. They don't have a brain. They don't see an acoustic guitar and realize, oh, it's, you know, it's quieter than drums and it's smaller than drums. You know, like we're trying to present essentially virtual reality uh, with our eyes closed. You know, we're trying to do it by ear only. We're trying to present this image to people, this world to inhabit. And that's a big thing when it comes to miking to me, is I'm trying to imagine how, what space is this thing taking up. Not only that, but for example, if I'm doing acoustic guitars that are like padding a track, like rhythm, you know, imagine like a Fleetwood Mac song or a Tom Petty song or something where, you know, there's just like acoustic guitars in the background, but it's like a rock song, you know. A lot of times what's cool for that is to mic them from really far away. So I'll use like one microphone, um, but maybe six feet away, 10 feet away, and then double track it. And maybe I'll use a 12 string, you know. So no, the, the, <laughs> the short answer is no, I don't always use multiple microphones on things. I do plenty of drum setups that are more minimal. I just did a folk session the other day where we had, I think, five mics. But then I've done as many as 20, I don't know, however many, however many mic preamps I've had. I've had a session where it was basically all of my mic preamps for drums except for two. One was for the bass and one was for the guitar. So I guess like 24 or 26 channels on drums. At the request of the person who was renting the studio for the day, they said, I want tons of flexibility on miking. I want, you know, a kick in, kick out. I want a sub kick. I want snare top, snare bottom, snare side. You know, they requested these things, you know. Uh, so no, the answer is I don't always multi-mic things. But if you are asking yourself, why would I want to mic multi-mic things? It's either to have flexibility or it's to allow me to manipulate stereo. So obviously like stereo tracking, uh, acoustic guitar or piano or something or organ. But it could also be because, for example, electric guitar, I'm a big fan of the Royer 121 and SM57 thing that, you know, everybody else is a fan of. But I don't necessarily use those for, quote, quote, EQ. I kind of just set the balance. And then these days I've been summing it and printing it that way. So I just have one guitar track per setup. I don't I don't want that for flexibility in the mix. I'm doing that solely um, for tonal makeup. I like how those mics combine. My goal is not to pan them, is not to, you know, treat one one way and treat the other. The other. It's, it's solely to get more frequency content out of it. Similar to the way we use a kick inside, kick outside. Like, you may use just one or the other, but generally speaking, it sounds great when they're both there and you kind of pick the balance that works great and, you know, you just tweak it a little bit. But for me, these days, I've been summing those things uh, while recording uh, using a little summing mixer, the 121 and the 57, and just printing it like that on one track. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Okay, number three. I have a one-room studio space. What tips do you have for monitoring and isolation? This is a really great question, and it's a tough one to answer because one-room studios can be really tricky. I have designed a few one-room studios and, you know, treated a few one-room studios. And a lot of times it needs different things than what a control room uh, would need or a live room would need. It's a different kind of treatment plan for a lot of those things. 
um, generally speaking, I tend to find you're going to have to almost make a little room within the room surrounding yourself with treatment. Kind of a, you know, part of the room is lively, part of the room is more dead. You know, building gobos is really necessary in a setup like that. You know, these tall, isolating panels. Um, and there's a couple different ways you can build gobos. Sometimes gobos are, if you're not familiar with that term, by the way, it's just a short, you know, an abbreviation of like go between. That's what I always have been told anyway, but uh, gobo. So some people would say it's from go booth. You can like make a booth on the go. I don't know. Anyway, I always heard gobo that way, but uh, they can be used for a couple different purposes. If they have a solid core in the middle, so maybe that's a piece of glass or maybe it's like a piece of wood, um, but then there's absorption on both sides, that is more of a, I'm trying to isolate you know, what's behind this screen from the rest of the world. But if the treatment is, is, does not have a core in the middle and it's just soft absorption all the way through, that's more of an acoustic treatment to absorb frequencies and kind of make a little room within a room. Because it, you don't want to use a solid core gobo if you're trying to make a room within a room out of those types of panels because all you're doing is making a tiny room. Whereas if you make large gobo panels that do not have a solid core, then uh, you essentially have a dual-sided absorber with tons of airspace all around it. Now, how big to make them, how thick to make them, you know, the dimensions specifically, what density of fiberglass, what do you put on each side? Is it fabric? Uh, do you do slat design on one side? There's a lot of other factors that could come into play. And some of that is based on the size of the room. Some of it's based on the types of sounds that the client wants. Um, I've done some acoustics consulting for people over the years, and I enjoy doing it. It's like my part, 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 part-time job when I, when I have the spare time. But I do enjoy doing it, and it's a little easier for sure when I can go see the room in person. That makes it a lot easier. It just depends so much on what the person is wanting and needing their personal preferences. For example, if you do hip-hop or if you do pop music, chances are your one-room studio can just be treated like a really good control room. But if you're planning on trying to record drums in this one-room studio or acoustic instruments, it might be a little bit too dead for that. Now, a live-end, dead-end type setup is a bit of a misnomer. A lot of people think that means just like, oh, you treat one end and not the other. And that is not correct. Okay. What that means is you have one side of the room is deader and the other side of the room is more lively, but you can't just not treat one side of the room and treat the other and expect that to work. It does not work like that. Generally, it means more uh, hybrid surface panels, um, meaning partly diffusive or partly reflective panels uh, on the live end and then fully absorptive panels on the dead end. So you're still using treatment on both ends, but it's just that one is more reflective and more lively. Again, that really depends on personal preference because with control rooms, yes, we have sort of a definitive goal. We want accuracy. We want you know our mixes to be predictable and sound good and and know what we're getting out of our low end and stuff but for a live room that's kind of like 
an instrument, you know? It's like personal preference thing. It's like, do you like a really bright live room, a really tight, dead live room? So it's hard for me to give specific things, you know, unless I was hired to do so, which right now I, I can't really take on anything at the moment. I've already got too much on my plate as it is, but there are more plans for that in the future. We'll talk about that later on the podcast. So in terms of isolation, definitely build yourself or buy yourself some gobos and consider like for things like guitars, building or buying an isolation cabinet for your guitar. Consider buying an attenuator like the Fryett Power Station. Consider even using things like reactive load with a load box that you can load cabinet simulations. I mean, there's tons of options that you can do. None of them are necessarily easy or perfect or, you know, right or wrong. They're all just different solutions. But definitely make use of gobos, put them on wheels so you can roll them around and make kind of little rooms within them. I'm not a big fan of those like acrylic, those like clear acrylic screens. I mean, they help a little bit, but really only for high frequencies. They're not really going to help much for lows. If you really need to isolate someone, you're going to have to have a specially made gobo that does have some sort of solid core in the middle with absorption on both sides. So I did a design one time that was like, I think it was about 10 inches thick and it was on wheels and we made two of them and they were big. Okay. So we essentially treated one corner of the room and then we butted those up against the corner, like in a V shape. So essentially we made like a little room. They were probably 10 or 15 feet wide it was a pretty large space to begin with, but they were on wheels, so you could move them. They were like 10 or 15 feet uh, wide, about 8 feet tall. Uh, one, one was like 12 feet, and the other was like, I don't know, 7 feet or something. It wasn't, it wasn't a square. And it was 6 to, six to 8 feet tall. I, it was, I don't remember exactly with the wheels and everything, but it was like dual sheets of MDF in the middle, and then the frame... And then, a, and then we had a piece of plexiglass that we cut. I wish we would have used like actual glass, but we, you know, plexiglass is just fine for this. Really thick plexiglass and that was inset into one of them so a vocalist could still see and the glass was angled. And then on the opposite side, you know, on each side, we had absorption filling the rest of the cavity. So there's absorption, center core, absorption, and then there's like a window cut out. Now that isolated pretty well. Uh, if you put a lid or a blanket of some kind over the top of it, it isolated even more. It partly depends on what you're trying to isolate. And the lower frequency and louder the thing is, the harder it's going to be to isolate. You know, if you're trying to isolate drums from acoustic guitar in a small room, you're, you're dreaming. It's not going to happen. You do not have enough space to, to isolate it. And even if you did, you'd have to make that, those booths so small and so tight and so dense that you basically now have just made two mediocre rooms rather than one large room. You know, definitely find a pair of headphones that you trust because you will be having to monitor through them more often than had, you know, if you had separate uh, rooms. In-ear monitors can be really helpful for that. Nice in-ear speakers, um, you know, nice in-ear monitors from there's a million brands out there. Grado makes great headphones. Uh, Biodynamic makes great headphones. Geez, there's about 10 different Australian companies making amazing headphones. I mean, th there's so many good headphones out there. I am not much of a headphone user myself. 
Um, so I can't really tell you what the, um, the latest hot take is on, on headphones, um, but definitely do your research and try to find a set that you can trust that has good reviews that, you know, is relatively accurate and trustable and has good isolation um, that, so that you can isolate yourself from the source just as much as they're isolating, you know, from you. The other thing is, you know, realize that you probably will have to make certain compromises. If you want, for example, uh, room mics on your guitar sound, well, can't really isolate the amp, can you? <laughs> you know, so some, some it's just you learn to love it and you deal with it and you figure out ways to make it work. That's, that's a big part of recording as a job in general. It's just like, oh, here's a, here's a puzzle. Let's solve it. You know, it's like... Let's figure out a way to get this sound. Let's figure out a way to do that um, and, you know, not get noise. Let's solve this problem. So that's a lot of the job. So hopefully those tips are helpful. Okay, number four, how do you keep the flow of a session going when working with clients? Okay, so uh, this is also a good question, and I get this a lot of, like, uh, you know, keeping on a good schedule and everything. For me... One of the biggest things that I can do is the better that I get at my job, the more efficient that I get at my job without sacrificing, you know, I'm not just like trying to rush through it, but the more efficient and sort of uh, just streamlined that I can make my process to where I am not a factor slowing them down, the better. Because I never want to be the one that they're waiting on to get a sound. If anything, I want to be waiting on them uh, to figure out a part or whatever and give them the time to do that. I want their time to be spent on those types of things. I don't want it to be 30 minutes of me diagnosing a problem or trying to get a good sound on something. You know, like I try to spend as little time as possible dialing in a sound. I want to get it really quick, you know, like a minute or two. I've got the sound. For me, on like a vocal, um, we do a rough run-through when I very first get it to, to make sure headphone mixes are good and levels are good, and I always record it. I have them sing a few notes. I set the gain kind of conservatively. I run it into a compressor. I put on a high-pass filter, again, very conservatively, and I hit record. And as soon as they start singing, I'm like making tiny little adjustments to the gain and to the compressor and trying to just see what's working. And I'm essentially getting the sound on take one. Now, sure, every now and then I have to, we have to use a different mic or I have to, you know, EQ it differently or use a different compressor or whatever. But again, I try to stay out of the way in terms of those things. So that's one of the tips that I have for keeping this flow going. Another thing is make sure that there is an established amount of trust with the band, especially like if they're a new client, like, just, like, hang out with them for a minute, you know, when they first show up. Don't just, like, get straight to business. Like, put them at ease a little bit. Talk about music, you know. Talk, drink coffee, drink wine, whatever you want to do. And and just, like, hang out with them and, and, and kind of put their minds at ease. Like, ah, he's, you know, he's a normal person or, or whatever. He's not weird. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and try to instill just that you are trustworthy, that you are the right person for the job. Again, this is assuming that you are, that you're not just, like, doing the session for money only. And and just, like, start the day right. You know what I mean? From there, I feel it's kind of like your mood when you wake up in the morning. If you, if you uh, you know, sit up in bed, 
roll over, you sit up, and you look around, you roll, your, you scratch your eyes, and you, you stand up on a thumbtack. Man, the whole morning is terrible. I've done it before, and it will ruin the whole morning. You know what I mean? It's like it makes breakfast terrible. It makes getting to work terrible. It makes traffic way worse. You know, everything's just like magically terrible when you have a day that starts like that, right? So I kind of view that similarly when it comes to the session. Like you really try. And don't get me wrong. I have failed on this many times before where like uh, I'll start a session and initially be like, listen, guys, I'm kind of worried about this song, um, you know, because this section is too long or, or, you know, I don't really know exactly what you're going for. That's not the move. I've made that mistake before. Sometimes it has come out just fine. So, you know... it's not always an indicator, but I, I, I just think it's more effective to try to hammer that stuff out ahead of time and try to figure that stuff out early so that when they're actually in the studio recording for the real deal, you're not super stressed. You, you have a plan. You know what you're going to do. They feel like they can trust you. They feel like their music's in good hands and you can just enjoy the session. Now, a sort of modified version of this question might be like, what happens if you hit a roadblock in the session? You know, what happens if you, you're trying to come up with an idea or a part or, you know, a player can't hit something right or they're struggling? Usually, a, you know, five, ten minute break is a good way to go. Grab some fresh air, go outside, you know, tell a joke, like just try to ease the tension a little bit in the room. Because sometimes a singer, for example, they can hit the part just fine. They're just thinking about it too much and they need to like... Just give them five minutes, you know what I mean? Be like, hey, let's let's take quick five, grab a drink of water, run outside, you know, get some fresh air. You know, if it's really cold, okay, maybe don't do that with a singer, but grab some hot tea or something and, and, and just take five. Take some deep breaths, try to get them to relax and, you know, get them back going in there. It's also important, this is sort of a weird specific one, but it's also important, I think, to to always be mindful of the temperature and humidity in your studio. It's very easy for... Uh, audio people to get really like single track minded and just like forget that the world exists, that that time is a thing and that people are outside living their lives. Um, It's like a time capsule in the studio. So sometimes we even forget about like our own personal comfort. You know, we're just like working and working and then we realize like, wow, it's kind of hot in here. Um, So I'm very mindful of the temperature because like There's nothing worse than, like, if I'm on the other side and I'm in, like, a hot room for five hours. That is absolute torture. Uh, Or, like, a really cold room. You know what I mean? Like, so just kind of be aware of, of, like, the temperature and humidity. Be aware of, like, do people, do they seem like they're comfortable? Are people, like, do they feel kind of tense and nervous and jittery or whatever? Like, you want to just gauge the room, like figuratively like gauge people's body language but also gauge it literally and like have a have a hygrometer and a thermometer in your room where you can see the temperature and the humidity (laughs) so one more tip on keeping a session going um you know how especially if you if you experience some roadblocks and things like that part of your job as a producer is to try to get the best out of them that you can. So sometimes that's taking a break, but other times it's stopping and doing something else. Other times it's pushing them to really get it. Like you have to learn over time to see what that looks like for different people. Like for certain players, maybe you're like, you know what? They can play it. They're just psyching themselves out. I know they can get this. 
just give them a few more takes. I am that kind of player where I, I tend to kind of psych myself out and I do a, a lot of takes when I record guitar parts or whatever because I want it really perfect. And I'm, I get so picky about things and I because I know how much of a pain editing is, I like to do stuff and not have to edit it very much, you know? So I'm like, man, if I can just get this whole part in one take, that'd be great. And then, oh, if I could just do that a little bit tighter, I'll, I'll do that. I know it would take me less time to edit it, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm just that kind of player. Not every player is like that. Some players are like, I want to do two, three takes and, you know, my hand hurts. Just edit it if it's wrong. <laughs> so again, be mindful of that as well. Try to read the player and like, the, the big red flag that you want to look out for is a player starting to get really, like, angry. You know, making the, the noise. It's like, ugh. Like, like, they're legitimately frustrated and angry. That's a sign to look out for and say, you know, like, hey, you got it. You got this. You're going to be able to get this. Let's take five. We'll try it again. Sometimes it can be a headphone mix issue, too, with singers. Like, maybe they can't hear themselves. Maybe they can hear themselves too well. Both of those are very real things. Make sure you always check people's headphone mixes. Um, don't trust musicians to make their own headphone mix. I, I almost never do. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go and listen to it and change it. But if I go and hear somebody's mix and, you know, all they have is like click and bass, I might be like, hey, um, are you happy with headphone mix? Do you want me to make you a headphone mix? <laughs> anyway. I think you get my point. So hopefully those tips are helpful for keeping a session flow going. Number five, what are some tricks to getting a good drum sound in a small or less than ideal room? So I do have a podcast episode about this, but I'll just summarize it again because, you know, yes, we've talked about most of these things at some point or another probably, but hearing it again in a different context, maybe articulated a different way, might drive it home a little bit more in your mind. It might make a little more sense. So some of the big tips um, that I have is is the the drummer and the drum kit and the heads and the tuning are absolutely the most important and most essential part of this equation. I have heard really, really good drums in a really, really good room um, sound terrible because of a bad drummer or because of bad tuning, you know, $4,000 drum kit with $10,000 of cymbals and tons of mics and all kinds of stuff like that. But the drummer just couldn't play. It's really, really frustrating. Meanwhile, if you hire a really good session drummer, it's like instantly everything gets better. It's like, what'd you do? What did you turn something, a piece of gear on? What happened? How come everything, like every mic sounds better. It really is that drastic. And anybody who's worked uh, with a session drummer, they seem to have a, a similar story to that. Who's like really worked with like a, a, a pro or a session bass player or, or anybody, you know, but it's like something's just different. They just like hit better. They balance themselves better. They just record better. They get better tone out of the drums. It's it's wild. Anyway, so that's the most important thing. But the room does have a huge impact on drums, specifically because drums are A, very loud, and B, they're full frequency spectrum. So in a small room, some tips that you can do. So let's assume the drum sound you're trying to get is pretty dead. 
that's actually pretty easy to do. I would say treat the room pretty tightly. Even though it's small, you know, if you're trying to go for a dead tight sound, like a Wolfpack type sound or like a real kind of, you know, funk or retro kind of lo-fi thing, just treat the room, make it really tight, really dead, and go for it. That's probably going to sound pretty decent. You know, you might try also over-miking things, uh, meaning like use a ride mic and a hat mic and a mic for each cymbal and a close mic on the kick, an out inside and outside mic, a snare top, a snare bottom. Like it at least would give you more options to try. You know, some people, they try to get uh, like minimalist recording setups are really hard in small rooms because all those imperfections become a little more noticeable. And, you know, for example, if your room sounds, your room is small but sounds good, then it's probably not a problem. But if your room is small and sounds, you know, questionable, if you only have like an overhead and a kick mic, that's really the bulk of what you're hearing is like the mid-range in the room and stuff like that. And, you know, just be aware of that. Like, I think if you're in a small room, it's probably better to mic uh, a little bit more aggressively just so you have some more options to work with. Now... If you prefer drum sounds that are bigger and more open with more size and space and, you know, more like rock drums or, you know, big like pop drums or, you know, metal drums, so on and so forth, that's a lot harder. Um, the sound of rock drums is generally like a medium to large room, you know, in a major studio. Like all that stuff done at like East West and I mean... Jeez, I can't even... There's so many, like, famous drum rooms over the years, and those rooms sound amazing. They're not necessarily tons of decay. They're not necessarily huge or anything, but they're not small. They're they're lively. They're exciting. You can put room mics up, and when you hit the snare, the room mics go, bah! You know, they have this explosive, uh, reflective, but punchy quality, and that's something that's incredibly hard to fake, Okay. It's not something that you can fake with reverbs. Honestly, you're better off blending in samples because at least a sample is a recording of a real room, whereas a reverb plugin is, I mean, generally speaking, math that's trying to simulate a room. And in my opinion, even though it's counterintuitive, people would be like, oh, I don't want to use samples, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, in this case, I think a sample is actually more natural than an equation. Is it not? Because you're playing back audio. You know what I mean? Now, I understand that samples can be a crutch, but in a little tiny room, you are wounded, so to speak. <laughs> so uh, use the crutch if you need to. Um, it's there to help you. Just don't go crazy with it. And again, still make sure to try to get the best possible sound you can. But Here's another tip. If you're in a small room, but you're trying to get like big rock drums, don't dampen your drums. Leave them really wide open tuned, okay? Leave your snare ringy. Leave your toms ringy. Now, you'll have to work a lot to make them sound good really wide open, making sure that when you hit the floor tom, your snare doesn't go nuts. And when you hit the kick, your toms don't go crazy, but if you work, and I mean, it might take hours and hours to tune them, but if you work on getting them all tuned really well, where they sound good and they sound open, that length of the sound from coming from a kick or a tom or a snare being more ringy, to the ear almost registers like 
organic room decay, like length on the note. Um, and you can get some bigger, cooler, like big rock drum sounds by doing that and then adding some reverb or adding some more samples or whatever. But again, drum sounds are diamond. There's a million of them. There's no real like this is a good drum sound. That's a bad. They're all kind of valid in their own way. So at the end of the day, you just have to experiment. But um, your best friend, if you're in a small room, you still are going to have to treat it at least to to tame some of the muddiness and the boxiness that happens in the low mids and the lows. Um, you're going to have to at least get something to tame that. Uh, if you're worried about the room getting too dead, I would check out the GIK Alpha series or uh, any of their traps that have a range limiter. Those are, uh, you know, a, a reflective face that doesn't absorb high frequencies. Um, but again, I can't tell you how many of those you need without measurements, uh, without data, because I, I can't, you know, every single room is different. Every, you know, people have wood floors and concrete floors. Some people have carpet floors. Some people have, you know, really dense walls that are double drywalled. Some people have old, thin drywall walls. You know, it's it, it's so different with every single room. I can't tell you this is what's going to work. But I hopefully have given you some things to consider. Always, always, always remember it's about the source. And we diagnose from beginning to end. We don't diagnose at a random point in the center, you look all the way back at the beginning. Is the drummer playing well? Do they need to change how they're playing something to accommodate for this room? Do they, do they need to play their cymbals quieter so this room doesn't make you know get so splashy and harsh? Maybe so. Do we need to use different cymbals? Okay, you're you're moving along the chain. So drummer first, and then the actual drum kit. And then you move along, okay, the drum tuning of the drum kit, okay? Is that good? Is everything good? Do I need to put a little tape on the cymbals to kind of tame them down a little bit? Or some moon gels on the drums? Or some tape on the drums to tame them a little bit? Control some weird rings? Then you move again further out. You have the room. Is there Are there panels I can, I can move around? Are, are the drums in a good spot in the room? Should they be up against the wall, in a corner, up against this other wall, in, you know, somewhere out in the middle of the room? depends how small of a room we're talking about here and then you keep moving microphone okay how's my mic position chances are if you're using you know an sm57 on your snare or an m80 from telefunken or you're using you know all the stuff that we all have heard about for years if you're using basically that stuff the problem's probably not the mic you know how many records have been made with those mics? The mics are not the problem. They're almost never the problem. Certainly not your pre's or your cables or your converters, any of that stuff. That is such a small portion of what actually is creating the sound. That is like the icing on the cake stuff, like to have really, really, really nice converters. You know, I've had tons of interfaces and converters over the years. And I mean, yeah, I've had noticeable upgrades, but nothing like the difference between using a ribbon mic and a condenser mic on a drum. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a night and day change. Whereas, you know, you spend an extra six grand to get a new interface and you're like, oh yeah, I think it's a little bit clearer. Maybe, you know, I got to listen 10 times in a row to, to confirm that though. <laughs> anyway, so hopefully those tips are helpful. Uh, and also make sure to go check out the episode that I did on drums in a small room. Hopefully these tips will help you get a better sound. Number six. Oh, I like this question. What is the weakest link that you see in tracks that you get to mix? 
Okay, so there are a couple of weak links. Oddly enough, I'd say the number one thing is bad editing. I know editing is it can be tough and annoying, but my gosh, like I would rather you just not make edits rather than make them terribly. Yes, I know that they can be hidden under EQ and reverb and stuff. Like once once it's mixed, you're probably not going to hear it. But oh my gosh, it drives me insane. Don't skimp on the editing, people. Like put in the time. Make sure your vocal edits are clean and that you can't hear them. You know, that sort of thing drives me insane. I know that's, you know, a little more of an editing thing than like a necessarily recording thing, but um, that's pretty weak. A lot of times the vocals are not well recorded. And by that, I mean um, they're all over the place in volume. The microphone is often way too bright. They're trying to get presence and upfrontness by using a bright mic when in reality they need compression or better mic technique or better um, vocal control to get the perception of more consistency and in your faceness, <laughs> as it were. Instead, the vocalist is kind of just like wimping out and not articulating. That's the number one note I give to singers, by the way is vocalists don't articulate. Um, it's very similar to the theater where you have to tell your actors on stage, like, okay, you have to go a little bit above and beyond because the, the play is not just for people in the front row. It's for the people in any row, up in the balcony, far back the auditorium. You want the emotion of the action to still make sense to somebody sitting in the back row. So if, for example... You, uh, you're in a play and you're searching for your keys in the play, right? And you're like feeling around in your pockets. If that's a very subtle motion, people in the back of the auditorium might be like, what is he, is he like touching his jeans? What, what is it, what's going on? But if you make a little bit more exaggerated motion, then it's like clear, oh, he's searching for something, you know, he's looking for his keys or lost his wallet or whatever. So Similarly, I, f I find in music, not in every genre, not in every circumstance, no, but uh, in a lot of music, sing singers need to articulate just that little bit more than they think they do um, because what they perceive like in their head, you know, their mouth is right there, like next to their brain. So <laughs> what they perceive in their head is like cool and moody and like smoky and sexy, but really it comes across as you know, do you have food in your mouth? Like, it sounds like they're not, I don't know. It really is annoying. And and it's so funny to me to hear um, when that happens, take one versus take two. I mean, it is a night and day difference. It's like the best EQ you've ever heard for just telling a singer like, hey, can you like articulate like the front consonants and, and edges of your words a little bit more? Even vowels too. So like, if you're saying like, for example, a lot of singers have problems with O. They'll say like, whoa, or like, oh, like there's like H's and stuff in there. And it's like, just say, oh, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's the, it's the edge of, it's the edge of the O, not oh, you know what I mean? Same thing with S's and T's. People will like really stretch those out and it's like, and that's just awful. Like I actually just made a note to turn that down in the editing process of this podcast because I know that's going to drive me nuts when I hear that. But it happens all the time. Singers will kind of like, it's almost like what sounds right in their mind's ear uh, or what they need to do to sound cool and moody and whatever. 
just doesn't always translate. And I think that's one of those things. They don't want to feel like they're trying too hard. Um, when in reality, like singing really well is hard. <laughs> so uh, you got to try hard, you know. Um, so tell your singers to articulate. And again, the way that I like to do it, kind of diffuse the situation, is not not to be like, hey, you need to articulate your consonants and vowels like, way more. I usually say, can you enunciate your words a little bit better? You know, 5-10%. And even though it's a night and day difference, they only perceive it as, oh, I'm just enunciating a little bit more. Um, you know, 5-10%, right? But it's night and day on the other side of the class. That's one of the best tips I can have uh, for you on recording vocals. But um, that's one of the weakest links I see is the vocals just not recorded very well. I also see issues with, Man, I got on a tangent on that one about... Uh, <laughs> anyway, so the question was, what's the, what are the weakest links that you see in recorded tracks? And uh, bad vocal recordings is definitely one of them. Another big one I get is really uninspired recording decisions. Like, for example, a, a guitar part recorded with a tone that's just so incredibly bland. And it's like, man, at least try to have some kind of vibe for this. Like... Come on, it's got to be part of it. Oh, or like an acoustic guitar that is, it's just, it's not played with a lot of heart. You know, it feels like I'm just strumming along. And, and again, that's kind of one of those things that a producer can really help to spot when you're recording is they can say like, you know, hey, can you like try to try to get into it a little bit more, play along with the drums and the bass a little bit, a little bit closer, a little bit tighter, try to match them like you're playing with them. But if, you know, sometimes a person, they just like, they'll run a take of it and it, they're like, oh yeah, that was good. And they'll just, they'll just live with it. I also tend to get, you know, I'll hear tuning problems and noise problems all the time, which unless I am feeling very generous or unless I am being paid for it, I don't fix because that's not my job when I'm mixing your song. Now, if you want to hire me to edit and tune and, you know, denoise and fix your stuff, then yeah, I would love to do it because... Poorly recorded stuff, it, it is annoying. Now, I'm not saying that you always have to have like a perfectly flawless recording, you know, but I'm saying that like there's some things that are just kind of like so obvious to me, like, yo, like that note is so sharp on the guitar. Just do that one more time. It would have taken you, you know, a second to just hit that one note again, you know, just those little things that are so hard to really like notice if you're the one recording it or, you know, if the band recorded it themselves. It's so much easier when you have somebody like me on the outside to say like, oh, I need one more take. Because when you're playing, it's so impossibly hard to be like, do I have enough? Do I, do, did, I, did I get enough takes? You know, whereas I can keep a checklist. So just kind of some sloppy production decisions. Uh, drums are often questionable. A lot of times if I'm getting stuff recorded uh, with low budget situations, the drums are just MIDI drums. And, you know, I can work with it, but it's certainly no fun to just like mix MIDI drums. There's a lot of little weaknesses like, you know, and, and it's so dependent. I mean, depending on what it is, but those are probably some of the most, the ones that jump out to me. It's just like, just cause sort of the basic mistakes, you know, noise problems, poor vocal recordings, buzzes or tuning issues or just little things that you would miss. One more thing I would say about that is like, also don't try to fake it till you make it. Like, if you're not really good at editing, hire somebody else to do it or don't go crazy with the editing. You know what I mean? Just, like, accept it. Like, or do another take. You know what I mean? Um, don't just 
be like, oh yeah, that take was pretty good. I'll edit it and then do a terrible job of editing. Cause now you've actually just made it worse than if you had just left it. I think you get what I'm saying. So anyway, hopefully those are helpful. Number seven, how do you deal with noise issues, buzzes, hums, hisses, air conditioner noise, either in the recording stage or editing stage? Thanks. Okay, so this is a really common question that I get. Some tips and tricks for dealing with just like noises and stuff and even like air conditioner and all that. I mean, when in doubt, it is pretty incredibly hard to beat Isotope RX for denoising. As far as I know, there is not a better software on the market for removing noise in uh, the spectrum from for vocals, for buzzes, for hums, for, I mean, almost anything. It is pretty CPU intensive, but it is amazing. I highly recommend you get it if you do any audio work professionally. It has saved my butt. I can't even tell you how many times. It's absolutely essential for me. You know, if I get something that's just like riddled with buzz, I find it a lot on, you know, like you'll see it on clean guitars that were recorded with a Strat. And, you know, when you're recording something really clean, especially if there's like not compression, like you got to be really careful because those noises will show up big time. And you can tame them a bit with Isotope RX and make it sound pretty darn natural and really improve the recording by just reducing that stuff, like a little bit of noise is not going to hurt anybody, but a lot of it is a distraction from the part, from the performance. Um, so like I said, Isotope RX, absolutely. And like declip and uh, like you can remove clipping and distortion. I mean, from stuff that was just that little bit too, too recorded too hot. If, if you want to, I can't even list all the amazing things that it can do. Check out a demo if you, if you haven't, it's, it's truly amazing, but do I try to get it as quiet as I can? Of course I do. Okay, that's always where my brain goes, is where the earliest possible in the signal chain that I can, the source. Um, so, for example, air conditioners, for when you're recording quiet instruments, you might need to turn the air conditioner off, okay, like quiet acoustic guitar. So they get a little bit hot, you know, record for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, turn it on, give them a drink of water, let them chill out for 10 minutes. Turn it back off, record more. You know what I mean? Like, it really depends on your building, of course, how well sealed it is and how it can maintain a temperature. But, you know, if you're really trying to get a great recording, I mean, is that really that much of a pain? No, it's not. I do that all the time when I'm recording, like, classical guitar or really quiet, like, delicate pieces. I turn off the air conditioner and, you know, my room can maintain a temperature for quite a long time, hours. Uh, it's a pretty well sealed room. So, uh, try to get it at the source for buzz and things like that. Usually that indicates either proximity issue, meaning certain pieces of gear are too close to other certain pieces of gear. So maybe that's uh, guitar, single coil guitar pickups too close to uh, certain lights or transformers. Anything with a transformer, whether it's a preamp or a power supply or a guitar amp or anything with a transformer, really. Or even the one at the street, you know, um... It could be lighting, it could be computer screens, it could be cell phone stuff, it could be, you know, I've had a certain brand of mic preamp that will go unnamed that is very expensive that um, when placed too close to a different brand of mic preamp in a rack, uh, they, maybe their transformers are just like specifically like they don't like each other. They both hum. But if I move that 
mic preamp down three slots in the rack and then move the other ones up, they're both fine. But something about putting those two pieces of gear next to each other creates some sort of a weird sympathetic problem. Uh, probably something to do with the windings, magnetics, I don't know. Buzz is usually related to cabling or electrical or, or transformer or things like that. Uh, hiss. Well, hiss depends mostly, I think, on the microphone and the preamp. Most converters these days are dead quiet in the hiss region. Cables aren't really going to have hiss. Now, I suppose you could have some white noise that might sound like hiss, but it's actually more like an interference sort of thing, but probably not. You'll probably hear it still. But hiss usually comes from the microphone and the preamp. So if that really bothers you, you're probably going to have to get a lower noise microphone or a lower noise preamp. If you're dealing with situation like uh, I'm dealing with now where I have an SM7, which is a very low output mic, uh, I love the SE Dynamite uh, plug-in little uh, jumpers that you can plug right into the XLR barrel, and it's a little preamp that has, I don't know, 20-something dB of gain. It's kind of like a cloud lifter, but even smaller package. Um, these are really great. I have two of these. I love using them on room mics for quiet instruments. I just pop these right into the, to the patch bay and plug it in, turn on phantom power, and these add like 20 dB of gain. And the benefit being it's super early in the signal path, meaning you are less likely to get losses along the chain, um, you know, going all the way from the live room to the mic pre. Once it's line level, you're fine. You're probably not going to lose anything, but, you know, that first initial run, probably the most likely point to pick up, you know, noises and stuff like that. In terms of hum or, you know, certain types of hum, man, that's, again, similar to buzz. It's like electrical, wiring, proximity, stuff is too close to other stuff, stuff is hooked up wrong. Sometimes, though, with hum and buzz, you're dealing with a simple lack of understanding of what a ground loop is. We talk about that a little bit on the uh, Commonly Confused Audio Terms show. But, for example, when in doubt, everything should be plugged into one circuit, uh, if it can handle the amperage, of course, because everything is sharing the same ground eventually. Uh, in those situations, you're kind of doing a star grounding sort of setup where everything eventually ties back to a single ground point, which eventually ties back to a grounding rod in the ground of the earth, <laughs> uh, like a literal ground. So eventually that ground connection goes all the way back there. But for example, if you have one room on a breaker A and another room on breaker B, those have different paths to ground and you have a potential issue there. So you might have to lift the ground on one of them, which is done at the microphone safely, not with a little, you know, pin plug that goes on power, not that. Um, but you can do it on, say, a, a direct box. Uh, there's usually a ground lift. That means it disconnects the audio ground, essentially, and then uses the ground from the mic preamp, essentially, after that. And now we're using this ground again. But it ignores the ground from out there, essentially. Uh, same could go for guitar amps, or if you're running a reamper out to the live room, you have to work on flipping your ground lifts. And another tool that can be really handy is a ground loop isolator, which is like the Humex. Okay, those devices can be lifesavers in certain situations. 
but they're not a cure-all, okay? You can't just plug everything you own into it. They're meant for really, like, kind of one device at a time. Um, they're more of a diagnostics tool for me. Every now and then I have to use them for tube microphones, for certain power supplies. They just really clean up the noise. You know, I should probably try to get them repaired because it's probably a sign that something is not right. Uh, but anyway, try to deal with it at the source. Don't try to just say, oh, I can EQ that out later. It's really hard to EQ out, like hum especially. Also, the cleaner the sound, the more you should be worried about it in general. So like if we're talking like a really airy, breathy vocal or an acoustic performance or like a very soft, intimate electric guitar part or really beautiful, soft uh, piano part, you should be more concerned with noise and hum and buzz and really crank it up and make sure that you're getting a good capture. If you're using distortion, there's going to be some noise, okay? There's no amp on the planet that is like absolute dead silence. That's just how tubes work. Tubes make a little bit of hiss. Transformers, you know, they make a little bit of hum. Now, there are some amazing designs out there that have gotten pretty darn quiet. Uh, but still, that's going to happen. Transformers are going to hum. Speakers are going to make a little bit of a, like once the, the signal from the tubes goes into the speaker, it's going to get filtered a little bit. So some of that hiss just goes away. But you're still going to hear some hiss. Okay, it's going to happen. But when you're on a clean amp, be very careful of like reverb tanks and be very careful of pedals. Be very careful of how hard you're pushing everything, that the distortions are not just showing up in your mind, like you're actually hearing. Because a lot of times what happens is you'll, you'll set a guitar amp where it sounds good and then you'll, it'll sound nice and clean. And then you come into the studio and you listen to it and it sounds kind of crunchy and like something's not translating, and you think, is my mic broken? Is my preamp running too hot? Any of that stuff. Well, one really possible option is that the amp is just not as clean as you thought. You've just never really listened to it that clean before. You know, it is what it is. So hopefully those tips are helpful. Um, power and grounding and noise and buzz can be a huge rabbit hole so that I can't really get into enough. You know, I can't really do that on this show right now, but maybe someday in the future I'll, I'll talk more about it. But yeah, don't just think, oh, I'll just get Isotope RX and fix it all later. Really try to solve it at the source. Do your research. Learn about it. Try to figure out, oh, this makes sense to hook this up this way so that I don't get a ground loop. Like, eventually you'll get it. It will make sense to you very simply. Might not now, but I promise you will. So, from there, like I said, always try to get it right at the source. And, you know, good luck keeping things quiet. Number eight, in general, what does the editing process look like for you? Do you tune vocals, quantize drums, etc.? Okay, so for me, because most of the stuff that I do is tracked individually or fairly, like kind of half and half individually, to me, the method that works well is I record drums and then I edit the drums right then. We choose the takes, we pick the fills, we make sure everyone's happy with the performance, and then I decide, as if I am producing, I decide what is going to be best for this production. Do I think it needs to be quantized? Do I, does it need to be quantized really, really hard, or does it need to be quantized like just a little bit? And I do it all manually. I never really use the beat detective other than for just quickie little parts, but I always move the edits manually and do slip editing through the whole song because, in my opinion... Uh, you end up making way fewer cuts. 
you can control it so much more like how aggressively you know you're editing and for example you could just make sure the kick is on the downbeat of each measure you know you could me- you could edit one you know once a measure essentially and just do that and not edit the rest or you could edit down to every single little tiny hit when in doubt like many things in life uh it's a little bit about moderation because you can get away with some crazy edits you know <laughs> in modern times but also like don't try unless you really have to like it's if you can leave tracks more natural and let them speak and let the natural performance happen then you know sure that's probably better but some people just like don't have very good feel when they are uh playing and sometimes quantizing can help sometimes it can make it even worse and if you're not familiar you know when i say quantize i mean like beat detective or you know i'm lining things up in time rhythmically So we record the drums, we edit the drums, then we record bass, and we edit the bass, generally. That's how I try to do it. From then on out, I will save a lot of those edits to later. In my ideal situation, I would edit the guitars and keys next. Then we would record lead vocals. And after the lead vocals are recorded, I would edit the lead vocals. And then I would tune the lead vocals if they needed it. Then we would record backing vocals. That would be an ideal situation because the backing vocals are now recorded to a final vocal take that is in tune. Now, a lot of times in my situation, I don't have the time to do that with a band. They'll rent out the studio for two days to track a single. And, you know, first day we get our drums and bass and rhythm guitar or whatever. Second day, you know, we'll do all the other parts. But we don't have time to, like do all of those edits in that time and then like have the backing vocalist practice to the new lead vocal that they're hearing for the first time since they recorded it. You know what I mean? To me, again, it kind of goes back to that one we talked about, uh, making sure that the singer has a great headphone mix. It's the same thing. I want to make sure that the backing vocalists are singing to the right thing because if they are, I have a perfect reference that I can be like, oh yeah, try to match that a little better. Because then it's like, well, I'm just matching the backing vocals and I'm just making it sound like it grooves together. Versus if you just try to record all the stuff and then edit it together later, the chances of the takes lining up really tightly or all the phase working together or whatever, it, it just seems slim, you know? Um, so that's kind of what my process looks like. Uh, I do a lot of editing and I do a lot of it for clients. I do for other people. Um, not my favorite thing in the world, but it is super important. It is something that people need to know how to do today. And, um, there are obviously like ethical concerns and stuff with it of like, should I quantize? Does it kill all the feel? Sometimes it does. You know what I mean? Sometimes it really will. Uh, but other times it makes it a ton better. I find tons of bands out there where, like, the feel is nice, but their drummer just, like, he's just a little inconsistent on the snare. And it's like, wow. Quantizing that made this sound and feel so much better. Similar type ideas with tuning. Uh, there, there are, Sometimes I have clients that tell me specifically, like, don't tune my vocals. I don't want to be tuned. And I sometimes won't, and I sometimes will, regardless. Uh, it... You know, you can make it invisible. Um, And just to clarify, both with quantization and with tuning, you don't have to go like 100%. Like you can just tighten things a little bit. You can make the tuning a little bit tighter. You can tighten the drums 
closer to the grid, but not necessarily 100% quantized. My job is to make the best production I can, right? And if I'm producing, my job is to make them sound as good as possible. Now, that doesn't mean as polished as possible. It means as good as possible and as appropriate as possible. And if they're a rock band, probably like that's a real gritty, aggressive rock band, probably don't necessarily want to tune them, you know? People know that it can be done. People might ask for it and all this, but usually I will, after everything is recorded, I'll go through and we'll edit all the vocals. We'll finish any other edits that we need to do. I'll edit all the vocals. I'll take out what I don't need from the backings. We'll take out breaths and spaces and, you know, we'll DS really heavily. Then we go tune it. I use Melodyne for tuning. I use the the big fancy one, the Melodyne Studio or whatever one it is, the stupid expensive one, but I use it all the time. It's great. And then I bring them back into Nuendo and yeah, that's, that's what my editing process looks like. I guess, you know, I, you, I do a lot of the editing as I go, the better you get at, again, like getting the efficiency up, getting in good habits, kind of editing as you go. Don't put all of that stuff off till later, especially not drums. You, you can't even do that because if you, if you just like record drums and you think, ah, oh, maybe I'll quantize these later. Don't, that's wrong. Okay, that that is something I can tell you to not do. You decide, is this the drum take? Are we should we edit it? Should we quantize it? Should we, you know, how much should we quantize it? You have to decide that because then everybody else needs to follow you. So let's say you decided, uh, let's tighten it up a little bit, but you know, let's say it's like 20% tighter to the grid, right? Fixed a couple hits here and there, shoved some things a little bit closer, but it's not like crazy super tight then that drum performance is your new click. So everyone needs to be playing to that, not to the click, to that. So regardless of what it is, after you edit the drums, you can kind of turn off the click track or turn it way down just for like, you know, totally dead sections. But the goal is to have it sound like you're all playing together, right? So they need to be focusing. So you actually, I mean, I tell bass players like, listen to the drums more than the click just to make sure that they get that that they're trying to play with the drums not the click uh like surely they know but i still tell players that all the time yeah hopefully those tips are helpful on on vocals uh you know like i said i'd love to do more episodes about vocal tuning or vocal editing or things like that but it's such a huge process and you know got to find the time to do it first but uh yeah great question great question Okay, number nine. Is it better or superior to add EQ and compression on the way in? Is analog stuff really that much better? What about filters? Should I even use high-pass filters while recording? Okay, this is another great question. A lot of people will ask me about the uh, analog gear that I use. Um, I'm using you know, compressor right now on my vocal. I use a lot of EQs and compressors on the way in. I have no problem committing to that stuff, and I've done it, for, I've done it that way for a very long time. Now... Are there, are there pros and cons? Yes. What that stuff is to me is it sounds great. It's quick to work with. you got two hands, but only one mouse. Think about that. It's quick. You can dial in a sound really easily. It's very broad. It's got great color to it. I know it's the real deal. And it's a time saver. It's an efficiency tool, right? Essentially, I look at this as an investment in my time. Not necessarily an investment in my sound. I like, guess they sound great, but like plugins sound great too. Plugins are getting better every single day. We know it. I know it. You know it. But they are. They just are. They're getting better every single day. 
every year that UAD comes out with new plugins, I'm like, wow, that plugin sounds great. That plugin sounds great. You know what I mean? They're fun to work with. They feel more like you're working with analog gear because they sound so good and because they work basically just like the, I mean, I've got a real LA3 and there are times when I'll put them side by side and I'm like, you know, I do like my LA3 better, but you know, that plugin gets like 90% there for like way cheaper, way, way cheaper. I think that that's LA3 is one that's just like included. You know what I mean? Um, the Poltec is killer. The Neve stuff's all good. I mean, and obviously there's amazing, UBK makes amazing plugins and I mean, so many great plugin companies out there, but they all sound good, but it's faster to do it in the analog domain. That's the main reason I like it. It's faster, it's more efficient, it's easier, it's quicker to dial in a sound. It sounds better sooner. I don't have to like mix the song instantly to make a snare drum sound right because I drive the mic preamp a little bit and I run it into maybe an EQ and maybe I run it into a distressor and the snare, when it's on, you know, laid down, sounds like 80% there, maybe 90%, just from a couple of little bitty things, you know, on the analog gear. Whereas if I recorded it with a clean mic preamp and I recorded it straight into the DAW, to recreate that, I'd have to add three or four plugins just to get it to that spot. Then I'd have to add more. You know what I mean? So it's easier on the computer. I mean, it's it's quicker. It's it, To me, it's not something that is a necessity, but it's something you should consider. You know, just having a couple of analog EQs and compressors. Uh, Distressor, for sure, is probably the one I'd recommend on terms of compression. EQ, man, that's so dependent on the person, but API makes great EQs. Um, Crane Song makes a great EQ. Uh, Neve obviously makes a great EQ. Purple makes a good EQ. I mean, they're all they're all great. Definitely consider getting some analog EQs and compressors just as time savers. Okay, so that brings us to question number ten, which is: Do you mix as you go, or do you wait until the end? Do you set the re you do reset the mix to zero? I seem to remember you saying this at one point. Um, okay, so these days, at least I don't remember what I may have said on the podcast long ago but these days i'm i kind of am mixing as i go i don't like purposely try to like really commit mix decisions until i'm actually mixing but there are definitely eq moves being made you know as soon as the drums are done being edited i'm putting on eq and compression and maybe some parallel stuff and maybe some saturation or whatever to try to take it into the area that it's supposed to be, right? Like to try to, I almost look at it like, you know, you're holding a balloon, right? And like that balloon wants to float away. And like, you know, you're editing, you're getting farther away from like a finished product because you're like, okay, you know, this is boring. My brain is drifting off. And then you have to bring it back and be like, okay, now remember, this is what it sounds like. This is what it sounds like. And then you go track guitars. You make sure everything's good. You do your guitar edits. You're starting to get bored again. That balloon's floating away. And then you have to bring it back and say, no, 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 it, it's got to, you know, let's make it sound good again. And so you're kind of constantly trying to do that. Another thing with this is that you you have to mix kind of at least get a drum sound working early. Because, like, how do you know if your bass is fat enough if you don't know roughly how fat your drums are going to be? 
how do you know how bright to make your guitars or where the brightness should live frequency-wise if you don't know how bright your cymbals are going to be? So you almost have to mix the drums kind of as you go slash really early and like pick a drum sound. That's a huge tip. I'm going to say that again. You almost have to mix your drums really early in the process for some sort of context and then you record bass and then you record guitars and keys and stuff again. Should I say it one more time? I mean, for the people in the back, like it, it doesn't make sense to record something over a drum performance that's not going to remain that way. It does not make sense. It completely negates any interplay and vibe that was going on. It's gone now. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't exist. Unless we're talking about moving it, like, five milliseconds or something. But, yeah, if you if you shift the drums, like, a little bit forward and backward in time, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, like, quantizing, like, actually tightening up to the click. The likelihood of that working is pretty slim. Now, suppose you could listen to the other tracks and see how tight those were played and blah, 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 blah. But point being, you kind of have to mix as you go. Otherwise you're not really doing the song justice and you're and you're spending more time chasing your tail because if you like i said if you don't know how your drums are going to sound you have a harder time in dial you have a harder time dialing in a bass sound and when that's not set in stone you have a harder time dialing in a guitar sound and a key sound and then at the very end you try to slap on a vocal onto this whole thing you know what i mean it's just you try i try to make it sound as good as possible as soon as possible um so all of these things are helped as well as by the time the singer sings on it, they put on those headphones and they're like, man, this thing sounds good. How inspiring is it to play to a mix where the person on the other side of the glass is like, oh, you know, that'll, that'll sound way better later, I swear. And then they're about to lay down, you know, a song. Like, that is not inspiring at all. Give them something to sing to, you know what I mean? I also find there are certain singers that, man, they they put the music way too low in their headphones and they think that, it's all about pitch and it's all about intonation and that sort of thing. When in reality, so much of vocals is about the rhythm and the shape of the words and like the consonants and how articulated it is and how it is performed, like the vibe of it, you know, how much edge, how much breakup, how much breathiness, how much like that's the majority of things. And so like people think, oh, I just need to like crank my vocal. And it's like, actually, you need to enjoy yourself and like vibe with the song and get a good performance. That's what you need to do. Now, sure, for some people, maybe they can't do that when the music is is too loud. But I find the singer's got to be able to get into it a little bit and, you know, turn it up in their headphones and don't give them too much of their own vocal. So the second part of that question was, do I reset the mix when I go to do the real mix? Um, no. I have done that plenty of times. Sometimes that's what you have to do. Generally, no, but I will reset certain elements, you know? Sometimes I'll reset the drums, and I'm just not happy with it, um, which is almost like kind of resetting the mix. Uh, very often, I'll reset the bass. Very often, because the vocals were the last thing we recorded, I'll reset those after they're, you know, we're all done with vocals and stuff like that. But I don't reset the mix. I, I don't reset my master bus. I don't reset any effects that we had in, in the session, any reverbs or delays. I don't affect... I generally don't change stuff like 
super drastically from what my initial response was because then even then when I'm like mixing as I go I'm not going like crazy hard yet anyway it's just I'm just helping it get closer so yeah then from then uh, I'll just do what I need to do but I don't like definitively reset my mixer uh, as soon as you know I'm ready to mix the song that I just finished editing it's a double time waste you have to get back to places that maybe your head was in a cool space thinking on a snare reverb or something uh, and then the next day it sounded like a terrible idea so no, I don't always do that, but sometimes you have to. Okay, so I have one bonus question on this one because it is 11 years of the podcast technically. I figured I had to have a bonus question. This is one that I added in. Uh, what are some real tangible ways that I can improve my recordings today? Uh, so a couple of big ones for me, the things that improve recordings the most. Obviously, you know, it's not a recording lounge podcast unless I mention your monitoring you got to be able to trust your monitoring, whether that's on headphones or speakers or, you know, record and then listen back. However you have to do it, you got to be able to trust what you're hearing. you got to be able to. Another thing you can do to improve your recordings is focus, a, try to focus a little bit more on the actual thing you're recording, like the guitar or the amp or the drums. Like, learn a little bit more about improving things at the source. For example... Could you name me your top five favorite acoustic guitar strings? What type and gauge and size and material? I could. What about bass strings? What about tubes for guitar amps? What about speakers? What about guitar cabinets? What about cymbals? What about hi-hats? You know, learn more about the actual things you're recording on. It's like, you know, when you go to school to be a doctor, you learn about the human body. You know what I mean? Like, they don't spend the entire time talking about the tools to operate on the body. They teach you about the actual thing you're about to operate on. And similarly, I think it's ironic that we spend so much of our time talking about the tools, completely ignoring the actual thing that we're working on, which I guess are also tools, but it's also, you know, it's an instrument. So learn about the thing that you're actually recording, you know, learn about songs and songwriting and instruments and cymbals and tubes and gear and guitar amps and all that stuff. Learn about that. Don't just dwell on audio gear. Okay, that's a very real tangible way to get better today. One more thing that I would recommend doing to improve is to go through the laundry list of a production. So, uh, you know, scratch tracks, drums, bass guitars, whatever. Think about that order in your mind and then, you know, write it down if you have to. And then beside each one, ask yourself questions like, how could this be more enjoyable for the artist? How could this be more efficient and faster? What things do I like about it? What things do I not like about it? What things have worked in the past? What things have not worked? For example, maybe you get to drums and you think, uh, never really been happy with my tom sound, don't really have a great set of hi-hats, hi-hats always seem harsh and annoying to me, headphone system isn't loud enough for a drummer, like, you're just going through not only tone things, but like studio things, production things, uh, really anything related to it, but you're just thinking about it in a systematic way just to organize your thoughts. And then from there, you can make a plan of, okay, 
Well, my biggest problems seem to be relating to uh, I don't have enough microphones to to have variants, you know, and get different tones. Or maybe it's I don't have uh, I don't have enough instruments in general to help get different tones. Or maybe it's uh, I need more mic preamps so I can use more channels on drums. Or you know, you can start to see similar patterns when you look at the whole process. And you kind of say, what are the good things, bad things? What could be more efficient? What could be, you know, what's making the process take up my time? All those things. And you can come up with solutions and start getting creative and coming up with ideas to solve those problems. Anyway, hopefully all these tips have been helpful for you. I'm really excited about the other two episodes. Uh, The ones I'm going to do are uh, mix frequently asked questions and uh, studio slash career frequently asked questions. I'm really excited about these because I've wanted to do these for a while, actually, because all of these questions are like homeless. Like they're not big enough questions to have an entire episode on. And some of them like don't really merit a YouTube video. It's like, what am I going to, you know what I mean? I could do it, but it's just pointless. So this is a perfect time for me to answer a bunch of questions that don't really fit in their own show, but are still important and still matter. And hopefully you got a lot of great tips and ideas today that were sparking ideas for creativity of how you can get better recordings. As you probably know from being in the audio world, everybody seems obsessed with plugins and mixers. And like the mixers are like the superheroes of the world. But if you're a fan of the podcast, you probably know that I am much more convinced that it's all about the engineering and the recording and the source and the room and the instrument and everything else that if you get a great recording if you get an amazing recording i mean in theory the mix should be really easy uh in theory like you mix it by recording it how it's supposed to be you know what i mean obviously there's some things like bus compression and stuff okay obviously that's different But uh, yeah, like it's just it's always baffling to me that like mixers will get so much credit for for this and that. And if you heard some of the raw tracks uh, recorded in, you know, East West or in these amazing studios by amazing engineers, I mean, you'd pull your hair out saying, who recorded this? How come they don't have their own, you know, signature microphone like this sounds amazing. Uh, the mixer, you know, added a little bit of compression and EQ and mix bus compression and reverb and they, you know, they get hailed as a genius. But this guy who spent six months recording this record and picking the exact microphones for the job and re-recording things and making sure all the edits were perfect, that guy doesn't get, he's, he's a ghost. Nobody even knows who he is. That's always seemed weird to me. Okay, so I am a firm believer that it's all about the recording and the mix is supposed to be like, now you've got the recording, now you blend it, right? Like, it's not supposed to be about, okay, now I make stuff sound good. You know what I mean? It's That's just not what it's about, okay? You try to get the best recording that you can. And then mixing is a lot more fun. It goes a lot quicker. Uh, you can experiment a lot more. Uh, it's really much more enjoyable. And, and it just sounds better to do it to get those results early, you know? So... I'm Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. I always appreciate you guys coming to listen. You can send me an email at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. 
check out the website, the YouTube channel. You know the drill. You can go to recordingloungepodcast.com for links to all that stuff. Uh, you can also check out the blog. You can check out, uh, let's see, the mailing list, which is a zero spam for me to alert you of when new episodes drop, when new YouTube videos drop, things like that. Also, on the mailing list, sometimes I will send out things like cool extra tips that maybe I come across or if I ever find a really, you know, significant article. But I promise you, I'm not one of those people that's like, you sign up for the mailing list and I send you junk every two days. I just don't, okay? I, I really don't. I don't have time to do that. <laughs> I don't have anything automated either. When I send an email, like, I write it and send it. Uh, so, yeah. Definitely sign up for the email list and leave me a five-star review on the iTunes or a podcast app or whatever it is now. Thanks all of you guys for listening. Can't wait to share these next shows with you and tackle some of these questions I've wanted to talk about for so long. So, all right. Enjoy the rest of your week. I'll talk to you next time.